we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 today. Revelation chapter 2. We began looking at Revelation last week, um, uh, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Uh, if you're going to use a Bible in the pew rack there, you're welcome to. It's on page 1028. Pretty much flip to the back of the Bible, the maps, and go back a few pages and you'll find where we are. Um, John, the disciple John, the last disciple alive at this point, has, um, as a, he is, we believe, in his 80s or 90s. He was the pastor of a church in Ephesus, arrested, taken to the Colosseum, thrown in a vat of boiling oil, and then walked out of it as though nothing was wrong. There wasn't oil burning any of his clothes or his skin. And so Rome, considering John to be unkillable, exiled him to one of their prison islands, one of them being the island of Patmos. And it was on this island as an exile, man in his upper 80s, low 90s, somewhere in there, that Jesus came to him and gave him this vision of this last book of the Bible. And to kick off the beginning of this, this book, Jesus gives John uh, a specific message to give to the Christian church, uh, using seven churches to illustrate that, seven specific churches that this letter, this, this vision he gets, uh, that he's going to take and distribute among these seven churches. Uh, but they are all truths that can still be applied to us today. And so today we are going to start looking at the second church in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Uh, Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna... Now, if you weren't here last week, the word angel uh, literally means messenger. So this is the leader of that church in that town, uh, the pastor of that church. And so Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So he says, I know your tribulation. I know your oppressive, your, your distressing suffering. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. I know, your, I know how difficult it is. And this, this idea of poverty, this is destitution. This is immense poverty. These are, you know, as it's been said, people so poor they can't afford the OR, so they're just po. These people, these believers here in Smyrna, are undergoing such intense persecution that the other people in town are stealing their money and not giving them any jobs because they believe in Jesus. And so they're encountering physical suffering, they're encountering financial suffering. He says, but you are rich, you still have a great spiritual wealth. Uh, Jesus is reminding them of their spiritual riches here, uh, even though they're enduring this, this trouble that is crushing them. Have you ever experienced that, like a distressing trouble that is like weighing on you to the point it feels like it's crushing you with every step you take? It's the idea that they're experiencing. And then he says, you're also undergoing the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. People who say they are followers of God but are not. They're actually followers of Satan. Extremely strong 
words from Jesus, calling these people there in the town, saying they don't worship at the feet of the Lord, they worship at the feet of Satan, as their actions dictate. Uh, They are messengers of the enemy. Don't raise any hands or point any fingers. You know anybody from the synagogue of Satan? Some of you are cutting your eyes. <laughs> and maybe somebody you see on social media that you, you mute for 30 days because, you know, you just don't want to see anything posted by them because it drives you crazy on your insides. But he says, these people say they are followers of the Lord as Jews. He says, but they are not at all. So this is an incredibly difficult situation these Christians are undergoing here in Smyrna. Uh, look, look at verse 10. So in addition to everything they're going through, look at what Jesus is about to say to them. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, if you're one of the Christians in Smyrna and you hear Jesus say that, would you be thinking, I've already been suffering a lot, Jesus. Like, you just list it off. You know, we're, we're physically suffering, we're financially suffering, and you just said it out of your mouth, Jesus. Satan's little minions are coming, and they're coming after me and my family, and it's already difficult. And then Jesus comes and says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer because it's going to get so much worse. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, now we believe this phrase 10 days is not a literal 10 days, but more a short period of time uh, in respect to some of the other time periods in Revelation. For 10 days, you will have tribulation in prison. He says, but, so, before we read that next sentence, um, he says, you're going to be thrown in prison for a little bit, and you're going to be tested, and your suffering is going to be so much worse. So you're thinking, okay, at the end of 10 days, I'm going to get out of prison, everything's going to be fine. But look at what he says next. So be faithful unto death. So the suffering they're going to endure isn't just you're going to go to prison and suffer for a period of time. It's you're going to go to prison and be killed is what Jesus is telling them. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lots of stuff here. I mean, you got the first death. The first death is is the death everybody experiences. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. If you're a believer, though, that's the only death you're ever going to experience. And it's not going to be that bad because you're then going to go to heaven. And so he says uh, there at the end of verse 10, So be faithful unto death. That's the first death. Be faithful all the way to death, and you will get the crown of life. Believe in me, and you will have eternal life. And you will not be touched by the second death. You will not be hurt by it. Nothing will come to you. Second death is hell. He says you will not get any of that if you believe in me. Not even be touched by it. Not singed in any part uh, at all so the people are going to have trouble they already have trouble they're going to have more trouble they're going to suffer and that suffering isn't necessarily going to be uh, specifically done by the hands that are going to throw them into prison Jesus says it's not their hands that are throwing you into prison even though physically it may be you're being thrown into prison because of a strategy of the enemy of Satan Jesus is revealing something to us that we often forget about even today Often today, we see a physical person as the one causing us difficulty or problems or opposition or frustration. They're they're frustrating my life and my kids' life, and they're making things worse. But when in actuality, there's something deeper 
behind that. Somebody may be being used by the enemy, not even realizing it, to cause that frustration and pain and irritation. The real enemy is not the person sitting across from you or the person on social media saying that thing or the person uh, uh, at your job or the person in your neighborhood. That's not the real enemy. The real enemy is spiritual. And the real enemy is coming for you and your family and your church and your neighborhood. So we need to always remember who the real enemy is. It's not your spouse. It's not your parents or your in-laws or your cousins or your friends or your kids, even though sometimes it may seem like it. They're not the enemy. It always reminds me of a scene in a movie about the writing of the Declaration of Independence and they're arguing about what needs to be in the Declaration of Independence and about breaking away from England and King George. And one of the guys is pointing at a guy across the room in the Congress and saying, You're, he's the enemy, he's doing this. And another guy stands up and says, no, he's not the enemy, the enemy is out there. If we're in the room and fighting with each other, we're forgetting who the real enemy is. The real enemy killed your family. The real enemy's coming for you. We've got to remember as followers of Jesus who the real enemy is. It's not the person out there saying what they're saying or making the laws they're making. It's somebody else. The person out there that we're seeing as the enemy, the physical person, that's a person who needs Jesus. And we always have to remember that. It can't be something that somebody's really making your life hard, or it can't be the person that you pass in the store who took the last box of macaroni and cheese. They're not the enemy. They need Jesus. Just like anybody else. Just like me. Just like you. They need Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is telling them, Satan is going to do this thing. His physical hands aren't throwing you into prison. Somebody else's are. He's the one who's going to do it. So Jesus tells them, be faithful. Be faithful all the way to death. Persevere. So be faithful all the way to death. And, and that phrase, be faithful, in the original language, that phrase means trust. So Jesus is telling these people, trust me all the way to the point that you get killed. Trust me, no matter how bad it gets. Trust me that I can get you through it, that I can do stuff with the situation that you never saw possible. He says, trust me, trust me all the way to the first death and you'll receive life. Trust me. Because Jesus honors trust now, belief now with life later. Trust Jesus come what may and he will show you the way. Trust Jesus, come what may, and he will show you the way through. So Jesus is telling this first church. I'm going to keep this in mind as we look at these next two churches. This first church, he's, he's just commending them about how faithful they've been. Tells them, warns them, it's going to get worse. Just be faithful. Just trust me, even if it gets worse. And now look at what he says to this next church. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's the word of God. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Yeah, it's all interesting stuff here. I mean, apparently there was a guy in the church, possibly a leader in the church named Antipas, who was a faithful witness. That word witness 
we use that word now today has come to mean martyr. He says this guy was a faithful follower and he was taken out and killed out of the church. He was taken from the church and he was killed. But note, what, I don't know what's going on in the city of Pergamum, but you, we saw how difficult he said it was to live in the previous church, in the previous town, Smyrna. But here he says this city you live in, this is where Satan's throne is. Satan lives in your hometown. Some bad stuff's got to be going on there. Jesus is saying this to these people. He says, this is what's going on. He says, Satan is living. His throne is there. And he says it twice, right? He says it there uh, at the beginning of 13, where Satan's throne is. And then at the end of 13, he says, that's where Satan dwells. He's living there. He set up his home base, his headquarters is in your hometown. If, if, if Satan set up his hometown here in Dequeen, would you want to move? <laughs> I mean, just if Satan's hometown, his, his headquarters, if he set up a throne right on the front lawn of the courthouse, would you be thinking, it may be time to move. I mean, Satan, he put his throne there. And so Jesus is telling these people, I know this is what's going on where you live. Verse 14, Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now back in verse 14 he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there, some in the church who are doing these things. So not everybody is. The whole church uh, the church as a whole held to Jesus, but there are some in the church who are doing other things. So let's look at that first. The, uh, who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Uh, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. He did genuine prophecies from God at times. However, he was also driven by sin. And when you're gifted by God and then driven by sin, in Balaam's case it was greed. Not only does it tend to lead you away from where God would have you to be, what Balaam ends up doing is he takes money from this king of Moab, Balak, and instructs him how best to tempt the people of Israel. What Balaam does is he goes to that king and he says, okay, look, king, you know, he tries to, the king tries to bribe Balaam to issue a prophecy or, or a curse on the people of Israel, and God wouldn't let him do it. He ends up blessing the people. He says, okay, since God won't let me curse the people, he says, king, I'll, I'll tell you this. If you just take a bunch of uh, people from, from your country uh, who I know don't believe God, actually believe the opposite of what God teaches, and you take them in and just mix them in with the people of Israel, and they start marrying each other, uh, and they start believing what each other believes and going the way each other goes, you're going to lead them away. The king might say, well then, but, but they might lead my people to, to that, to God. He says, oh no, that's not the way it works. <laughs> it, it's so much easier for, for, for your people who have nothing to do with God and want nothing to do with God to lead God's people away from where he would have them be. So Balaam said, just lead them in there and it'll take care of itself. So that's what that king does. He, he, he leads some of his people in there and they began to uh, pull the people of Israel away from God's best. And when it says they begin to eat food sacrificed to idols, that was a way that they worshipped idols in this period of time. They would, they would take, have their idols set up, and they would take food in there, and, and they would lay it out before the idol, pray to their idol they had built, 
And then they would take and eat the food as an act of worship to the food they had just sacrificed uh, to the idol uh, by eating that food. So he says the teaching of, of Balaam is leading people into idolatry. He says, so you've got people in your church who are doing this idolatrous, these idolatrous actions. And so he's, 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 Jesus is instructing this church here in Pergamum about this uh, situation. And, and then he says in verse 15, they also had people from, who were falling in with the Nicolaitans, and we don't really know anything from history about these people other than uh, they held to teachings that were not in line with what Jesus taught. Um, they've already been mentioned before in the book of Revelation. Uh, they were not uh, a very godly people uh, as far as their actions and their, their decisions and their beliefs. But the issue that Jesus is having with the church isn't just that these people are doing this in the church. It's that the church is tolerating it and saying nothing about it. It's that, yes, there's some faithful people there, but the faithfulness only goes so far because nobody's saying anything about all this mess that's going on. This idolatry is going on, and everybody knows about it. It's very public. It's very open, and nobody's doing anything about it. Jesus says, this is a problem. When, when people are these professing believers leading each other away from where God would have them go, and nobody's saying anything or doing anything or trying to intervene, there's going to be an issue. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's the word of God. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he says, repent. Stop doing this stuff, those of you who are doing it, those of you who are tolerating it and allowing it to happen and not intervening, you repent from that and stop doing that. He says, otherwise, Jesus says, I will come and make war on you. I don't know if you've ever been in a battle before or a physical fight with somebody who outmatches you completely. I mean, just, it's not even close. I mean, it's like a 280-pound UFC fighter against a 120-pound high school freshman. Who's going to win? I mean, it's not, it's not even going to be close. I mean, one punch, the guy's gone. Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to make war on you. Say, well, I guess we're going to lose that one there, Jesus. Uh, okay, I, best, I guess I, I really need to repent. Jesus is really trying to uh, uh, bring about a complete turn from their lifestyle here. And repenting isn't just stopping the action. It's stopping the action and doing the opposite of the action. He says, you're worshiping th these idols in this way. You not only need to stop that, you need to turn from that and come to me and worship me. Every attention that you're giving this idol, you need to give to me. All your uh, uh, schedule rearrangement to worship this idol, you need to come. And give how much you're sacrificing in your life and your family towards this idol, you need to come and give that to me. Because that's supposed to be mine and not this idol you made with your own hands. He says, so stop it, repent, and come to me. And you'll receive the hidden manna, 
possibly the bread of life that he references from John chapter 6. But then he says, those of you who believe, you'll receive a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. And there's lots of speculation about this. Some say it's like a like an all-access pass. Uh, some, there was one city back in the day that in order to get into events, your ticket in was a white stone uh, with a name written on it. It would be highly personalized. Um, it could just be uh, a blessing. Um, at the end of the day, uh, all we really know about this stone is that it, it is a personalized representation of an eternal blessing in whatever capacity. It's personalized. It's got a name on it, a name nobody knows but the one who receives it. Um, and I would imagine the one who gives it, Jesus. And it's going to bring with it a blessing. As at the end of every one of these uh, uh, conversations about these churches, it's about pursuing the life of faith until eternity. And so he's talking about salvation. Only those who are saved are going to get this. So this is an eternal blessing. So a personalized representation of an eternal blessing. It's what he's talking about there in verse 17. Uh, and so... If you believe, you're going to get this. And, and this name that's on it, names back in the day were supposed to be a representation of your character, of your spirit. Uh, oftentimes it was something the parent saw in the child or it was a blessing the parent would put on the child or sometimes it was a curse in what the parent would say. I mean, think of uh, Jacob. When he came out, he was given the name Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver. And he lived up to that name. Um, but there was another time when uh, Jacob had a son who was born. And his mother was dying and giving birth. And she wanted to name him Ben-Oni, which meant son of my suffering. How would you like to walk around with that? Mother dies in birth and names you son of my suffering. But the father changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. My right hand man, my strength. Completely different intonation for the rest of his life and so this name that is being given to those who believe is being given by Jesus because Jesus knows something about you and your character that nobody else does Jesus knows something about who he designed you to be that maybe you don't even know and in that day when we receive that in this eternal blessing it's going to be calling out something that he placed within us uh, look at verse 18. To the church, or to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, great passion, feet like burnished bronze, possibly like the altar in the temple of sacrifice. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. Now, I don't know if you remember last week, uh, those of you who were here, but this is very similar to what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 2. Like extremely similar with one exception. To Ephesus, Jesus had said to those Christians there, he said, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. He said, but I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. So to the church in Ephesus, he had said, you stopped loving. But to the church here in Thyatira, he says, he commends their love. 
He says, I know your, your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed your first. He says, your love has only gotten better. So this church is doing something that that first church, Ephesus, wasn't doing. And Ephesus, John, who's writing this letter, was the church he used to pastor. And they aren't loving like they used to. And now this church in Thyatira, Jesus is saying, you're doing it right. You've got it going on. However, they still had a shortcoming, similar to the last church. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her a time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So Jesus has something against you. That's plural, all of them, not just a few of them. They tolerate, he says, this evil woman, Jezebel, who's leading the people to follow her practice and her teaching. She calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself a teacher. And she's pulling them away from where God would have them go, from what God's best is. She has come and she's garnered a following among the people that are supposed to be following Jesus and is pulling them towards something they don't need to be going towards. Again, just like the last church, this idolatry. He says you need to stop tolerating this action. And her name probably isn't Jezebel. This is, Jezebel is a name from the Old Testament um, to Jews. No, no God-honoring Jew would name their child Jezebel. It would be like a Christian naming their child Judas. Uh, you just, you're not going to do it. I mean, anybody looking forward, you already thought up baby names, Judas at the top of the list? I don't, I don't think you're going to do that to your kid. If you are, we need to have a serious conversation. You're going to mess that kid up in all kinds of ways. And so Jesus is giving her this representative name. But everybody in that church who's reading this knows exactly who he's talking about. Exactly who he's talking about. He says she's, she's leading people to do this stuff that doesn't need to be done among the people of God. He said, and you, Jesus said, you're tolerating it. So in the last church, he said, I'm going to come and make war on some of you, those who are doing this stuff and those who are tolerating this stuff. Here straight up, he says, you as a whole church are tolerating this. He says, this, it's not just her who's doing it or the people who are following it who are doing this stuff. All of you are allowing it to go on and persist and not telling them they're wrong. By your silence, you're saying it's okay. By your silence, you're being guilty just as much as those who are doing it. You're not intervening in any capacity. You're tolerating the action. If you were sitting at your dinner table and somebody came in and you just set out all the plates, you set out all the food on everybody's plate, and you saw somebody come in and to one of the plates of food, let's say you're having hamburgers. I'm already hungry and I'm thinking about hamburgers. Man, I, hamburgers are like my favorite, all right? Somebody comes in with a syringe and shoots poison in that one hamburger. Everybody sits down at the table and you don't say anything. You just watch that person eat that poison hamburger, knowing it's poison. Are you just as guilty then of the person who put the poison in the burger? Absolutely you are. You're not going to intervene? What if it's your kid eating the burger? 
What if it's your wife, husband, neighbor, friend? Even if it's your enemy eating the poison, you're just as guilty if you don't intervene. And Jesus is telling these people, you're, you're tolerating it. You're allowing them to go and do this stuff, and nobody's saying anything. He says, I, this is a problem. He says, you've been doing great in your faith. You have great love. You have great patient endurance. But where's the boldness here? You're allowing followers of Jesus to be pulled away from Jesus. You're allowing people who are coming to your church who don't know Jesus but are looking for a way to him to be pulled away, further away from belief, from potential belief. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. She continues to refuse. It's not just a one time. She refuses. She continues to refuse. Have you ever known someone to continually refuse to stop doing something destructive? Look at verse 22. Jesus says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. That sounds pretty harsh, but just as with the rest of the book of Revelation, but just as here, as Jesus is talking about Jezebel and her followers, this is figurative. Her children are those who are following her teaching, are her disciples, are her, those who are in her Bible study, so to speak. He says there, she is going to suffer, and those who are refusing to repent as well are going to suffer. Because it, continuing to do this is only leading people further away from me is only preventing other people from coming to salvation. He says, so i got to stop it. If you're not going to stop it, I'm going to stop it. He says, we've got to put a stop to all of it. And so they're going to be judged. Judged according to their decisions. Judged according to the decision not to follow Jesus. He says, verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. So don't tolerate it. Stay faithful in yourself. Persevere all the way until the end. So these believers are supposed to hold to the Strong Christian teaching, the strong Christian doctrine, supposed to hold to the, uh, the prayers, the, the, the relationship with Jesus all the way until uh, he comes. That, the gospel, is the only thing we're supposed to hold fast to until he comes. Everything else we're supposed to hold loosely to. But, sadly, many of us and others hold fast, hold tightly to a wide variety of things. Our opinions, our political opinions, our opinions about how somebody else should act, 
or how somebody else should parent or how somebody else should live their life. And we have a wide variety of opinions that we hold fast to, that we cling to. When in reality, the only thing we're supposed to hold that tightly is the gospel. I was talking to Katie the other day about a similar situation, and I had this, this quote I came across. I don't remember where it came from. But if we choose to die on every hill, we're just going to end up dead. The only hill we're dying on is the gospel. That's the only one where there can be no compromise. So J Jesus is saying, only hold fast, only cling to that truth of the gospel until I come. Stay steadfast. If we try to hold fast to all these variety of opinions and all these variety of issues, we're going to get exhausted when it finally comes to hold fast to the gospel. We're going to be out of juice when it finally comes to holding fast to Jesus because we've expended all of our energy on everything else, on everything else, and missed out on the only thing that matters. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have solid convictions or solid opinions. We absolutely should. But again, the only thing not worth compromising on is the gospel. Above all else. You say, oh, but, 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 I mean, this person's saying this thing. This person's actually taking me to court. Jesus, you know, and, and what do you mean? Only hold fast to the gospel. Well, Paul said in Corinthians, it's better to get cheated. It's better to lose a court case than lose your witness. That's the thing we have trouble with. That, that Paul says it's better to be wronged. It's better to have everybody think that you're wrong than compromise the gospel. We don't like that. We don't like when people think something negative about us. We don't like when somebody thinks something about us that's not true. We've got to set the story straight. This is about truth and justice. In the American way. All right, Superman. This is about the gospel. That's it. People are going to say what they're going to say. People are going to think what they're going to think. You can try to set them right. They'll just make something else up. So that's why we should focus our energy on the gospel. Jesus says, hold fast to that. And let it all else fall into place. A man, great pastor, died this week. And his common phrase he said throughout his entire life was obey the Lord and leave all the consequences to him. Obey the Lord and he'll take care of the rest. Obey him and leave all the consequences to him. Look at verse 26, these last three verses. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. Morning star, Jesus is called the bright and morning star in Revelation 22. So they will receive eternal life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in these three churches that have been mentioned, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, those last two are dealing with the same issue idolatry, following after idols and tolerating following after idols. And the first church was faithful. He said, continue to be faithful all the way to death. So be faithful, don't follow idols. And 
Again, it wasn't just the people in the churches who were following the idols. Everyone else had become comfortable with the people following after idols. So comfortable they didn't say anything. They just allowed it to happen. These people had adopted the idol culture of the people around them, the unbelievers around them. Believers had adopted the idol nature of the people who didn't believe in God and allowed that to persist and continue in their lives as well. And it, it didn't just happen overnight. It seeped in over time. But you know what an idol is? It's not just something that you chop down a tree and make into a little human form and put in your living room. An idol is anything you give specific attention to that you sacrifice something on the altar of. <clears throat> Have you ever sacrificed intentional time with a family member on the altar of your phone? On the altar of sports? Have you ever sacrificed time with your family on the altar of your job? Have you ever sacrificed time with the Lord on the altar of binging whatever show you're in the middle of? Or on the altar of sleep because you were up late binging the show? When, when we sacrifice something the Lord would have us do on the altar of something else, we've created an idol in our life that would take us away from where God would have us be. And it can be anything. It can be money. I, uh, money can be an idol. Pursuing it, getting enough that we feel safe and secure. So much so that we're putting our trust in the money instead of trust in the Lord. An idol can be what other people think about us. And we sacrifice what God would have us do on the altar of what other people think. An idol, an idol can be expectations that others have placed on us or that we have built up within ourselves about a situation or about a life that we're supposed to be living. And instead of following what God would have for us, we, we make decisions based upon those expectations. And the, all of these idols spring from an unbelieving culture. And, and Christians, just as Jesus said to these two churches here, Pergamum and Thyatira, Christians, a lot of times, me included in the list, top of the list, begin to mimic the idolatrous actions of a culture that doesn't follow Jesus. You know, I was, this past Wednesday, um, we, finished, we did our last Wednesday night adult Bible study. Um, and this next Wednesday, uh, no more adult Bible study through the summer. Um, and our children will actually be, be out at the sportsplex. Our youth are still going to meet here, right, Jared? Uh, but the kids are going to be out there. Uh, that, that is right, right? Okay, good. Um, uh, it says a celebration because this will be that, the kids' last Wednesday as well. Um, they'll have hot dogs and whatnot. But uh, this past Wednesday, we were talking at the end of the book of Joshua. You see, when the Israelites came into the promised land, God told the people, don't make treaties with any of these nations that are in the promised land. 
He warned them. He said, these, these, these nations here are evil and wicked, and they worship all kinds of stuff. They sacrifice their own kids at altars built for these idols. I don't want, they're going to mess you guys up. I mean, just like Balaam told Balak about the people of Israel, if you allow their culture into your culture, it's going to pull you away from God's best. So God said, don't make treaties with them. And they did. And at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua warns the people. He says, it's not just about making treaties with these other people. He says, at the base root of it, he says, don't make alliances with their gods. And the people said, we won't. We absolutely will not. Joshua said, you can do what you want. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people said, us too, Joshua, us too. And then Joshua says, people, I know you people. Some of you people got idols in your house right now. Joshua telling the people this. He says, you got to take those idols and get rid of them. Get rid of them. They, now, what's interesting about this whole story at the end of the book of Joshua, they're in a city called Shechem. This is an important place because all the way back in Genesis, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob gathered his family together in the city of Shechem. and says, I know you people have some idols in your tents. You bring them to me. And Jacob took the idols of his own family, his kids, his wives. He took those idols and he buried them there under a tree at Shechem. And then he and his family left. He buried them. They left the same day so they didn't have time to come back and dig up their old idols. He says, this thing in following God is so important. We're not going to stick around and give you an opportunity to dig up your idols. We're going to leave. So Jacob did it. Generations later, Joshua did it. Generations and generations later, we are here in Dequeen, Arkansas, in green pews, and Jesus is saying the same thing. Give up your idols. Because this gospel thing is too important. Too important. Maybe you need to be deleting some apps right now. Maybe you need to trade in your phone for a dumb phone. Maybe you need to go home and cancel your subscription to that streaming service. Maybe you need to go and make a phone call, make up with somebody that you destroyed the relationship of because you had an idol of pride. Maybe your idol is an addiction. Maybe you've been sacrificing finances. You've been sacrificing family on the idol of alcohol or drugs or that one other person and you've turned them that thing into an idol and Jesus is coming and he's saying the same thing to us he was saying then that, that he was saying to Joshua in the nation of Israel that he was saying to Jacob and in the nation of Israel his family at the time give up your idols and to all of us stop tolerating idol worship put an end to it put an end to it because when you put an end to it, great things can happen. We see in the life of, of Joshua, when they got rid of their idols there, it says the people of Israel faithfully followed the Lord throughout the lives of those people who gave up their idols. After that, they, they ventured off and, and did not follow the Lord faithfully. But once their leaders... Those who were supposed to be following God the strongest gave up the idols. Everybody else followed along for a period of time. For a generation. Imagine that. Imagine your generation, the succeeding generation, 
faithfully follow the Lord because of a decision you make today about giving up your idol? What would that look like? Would you be willing to give up an idol in your life if it meant the salvation of a generation of people? That's what, Josh, that's what Jesus is calling the people to here in the book of Revelation. That's what he's calling us to. Give up your idols and be faithful. Trust me. All the way to the end. So instead of getting comfortable with accepted idols in an unbelieving culture, we need to get comfortable with the faithfulness of God in an uncomfortably faithless world. The world is faithless. They, they don't know Jesus. And so they're going to make decisions based on not knowing Jesus. And we as Christians can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. They won't. They won't. They're not going to, you know, make Christian-based decisions. It's just not the way it works. They need Christ to make Christian-based decisions. One of my favorite TV shows in it, this guy's running for president, and he's being coached in, uh, for an upcoming debate about how he's supposed to speak and how he's supposed to present himself on TV. And his staff keeps telling him, you've got to get the presidential voice. Nobody's going to vote for you if you don't get the presidential voice. And they bring in this consultant, and the consultant kicks out his whole team and says, listen, Mr. Candidate, the thing they're not going to tell you about that presidential voice is you have to be president to have it. And the thing about following Jesus You've got to have Jesus to act like him. You've got to have Jesus to act like him. And so we as Christians need to stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. And then getting mad when they don't act like Christians. They're not going to be like Jesus because they don't have him. And so we need to give them Jesus. We've got to give up our idols, get Jesus ourselves so we can give him away to everybody else. So we need to get comfortable with the faithfulness of Jesus in us and stop being comfortable with all these idols that are around us and adopting them into our lives. So two questions. First off, do you have Jesus? Do you have Jesus? Do you have him in your life? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? That he died so all your sins would be forgiven? And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Do you have Jesus? The second question, if you have Jesus, do you have an idol in your life that you've struggled to give up? Maybe it is a specific thing like social media or alcohol or drugs or, or, or a mindset. Maybe it's pride-based. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe your kids have become your idol. Maybe it's control. Control over everything you can possibly control in your life, and you're not willing to give up control because you think your hands are the best hands. What is your idol? What do you need to give up today? In just a minute, I'm going to pray. Music team's going to come. And if you need to make a decision for Jesus, follow him for the first time. Be baptized. Show the world you belong to Jesus. I'll be here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. Jared, the associate pastor, will be in the back. He'd love to talk to you, pray with you, celebrate with you. If you need to come and pray, pray for your own heart. Idols you may have, leave something physical on the altar as a representation of leaving something behind on the altar of Jesus. Come and do that. Maybe you need to come and pray for somebody in your life who's got an idol that they've been clinging to with everything they've got. 
and they're not willing to let it go. People keep trying to pry that idol out of their hands, and they're holding tighter than ever. And you need to come and pray for that person. Come and pray for that person. So I'm going to pray. It'll be your opportunity. Make a decision or come and pray.